I want to talk today about monetary policy. And um, first, though, I wanted to just review uh, some thoughts about Carl Icahn, who uh, spoke on Monday. Uh, I thought he was very amusing. Uh, I um, am again happy that you ask questions, because that's when you bring out a speaker really well. I thought you could have given him more trouble. He is a controversial figure. Uh, what he does, as you know, is takes over a company and shakes them up, uh, and uh, in, in some cases uh, is accused of stripping their assets. But it's all legal, and uh, uh, it, it you could make an argument that it's in the general good of our society that people do that. If a company sell, if its stock sells for less than its assets are worth, then the company maybe should be broken up and the assets taken and given somewhere else, because the low, the low stock price indicates a problem. Uh, I, you know, I don't know how to evaluate everything Icon has done, but uh, some corporate raiders have been unkind to employees. Uh, maybe it's not always the raider, it's that some employees had trusted in an implicit contract that they were offered by their employer. For example, the employer may have said verbally or suggested to an employee that uh, you know if you do well, we'll promote you up and uh, uh, you will have various advantages in the future. And then an outside raider comes in and just fires the employee. So naturally, the employee feels wronged, uh, and there are instances of that sort of thing. Um, but uh, again, it's like anyone who does important things; it's hard to judge the whole picture. And um, uh, on net, I th I'm sure he has created value for the economy. Um, so yeah, someone suggested that we should bring in corporate regulators, <laughs> as you, <laughs> uh, as well. Uh, I think maybe in the next year I'll, I'll do that to offset. Um, I'm bringing in a lot of very successful um, finance practitioners, and I don't have any regulators this year. Uh, also, uh, we, uh, one of you asked, uh, what, what literature do you read? <laughs> and uh, he mentioned the Nicomachean Ethics, which I have never read. I don't know what that is. But, uh, and he also mentioned a poem by Rudyard Kipling uh, called If. Uh, and I didn't recognize what he was referring to immediately, but I looked it up. And it's a, it's a famous poem that you must have seen. Uh, so I, uh, written in 1910, uh, an inspirational poem. So I put it up on the classes V2, not as part of the reading list, but it's under uh, uh, resources. So you can read Kipling. Uh, and maybe he thought of that because it, uh, it's really a poem which seems to be a poem of advice for young people because it ends up. The, the last line is, what, do, do you know the last line? Can someone recite it? What's the last line? Can you be a man, my son? Yeah, if, yeah, if you follow these instructions, you will be a man, my son. So uh, that's the mode of thought he may have been in when he talked. Uh, anyway, we have a, our second midterm exam is on Monday, uh, and it will be like the first midterm, but it will be less. Ma less mathematical. This part of the course had less technical apparatus than the first part of the course. So it will concentrate on the middle third of the course up to this lecture. 
Uh, you have to read Fabozzi et al. again carefully, because I, I, I'm free to take anything uh, from the um, uh, key terms and key uh, concepts from uh, the chapters that were assigned for this part of the course. And of course, every reading that is online, I don't expect you to go to the library, uh, is uh, something I might ask about. Uh, and April 11, we have Stephen Schwartzman coming, and I'm looking forward to that. That will, again, be a Friday, uh, but it will be at 9 o'clock, and he will be here. Uh, so uh, I think that will be a lot of fun also. So I wanted to then start today's talk uh, lecture, which is about monetary policy. Uh, and uh, it's really apropos right now. Uh, we are living in very unusual times, and I am sure that Ben Bernanke and other central bank presidents are uh, losing sleep right now. Because this is a time to challenge monetary policy makers. Uh, the thing that really emerged just in the last week or so is that, of course, monetary policy is about setting up interest rates. Okay. In the last week, the Treasury bill rate on the United States th uh, four-week Treasury bills, which are the standard, uh, essentially three-month, it fell to 0.2 percent. Okay, this is shocking. What what is happening now? Interest rates have hit zero. Zero point two percent. That's twenty basis points above zero. People have long thought that these kinds of things happen only in Japan, uh, but that's not uh, that's not true at all. It's happened. It's happening right now in the U.S. There's been a total crash in in. Uh, Treasury bill rates. So uh, uh, it's not going to. One thing we know is that this crash is over. <laughs> the Treasury bill, the three-month Treasury bill rate, has crashed. It's virtually zero, uh, and the story is over because it can't go any lower. Well, it could go 20 basis points lower, <laughs> but interest rates can never be negative, right? So that's it. It's over. We've just hit zero. Uh, this is the thing that worries central bankers. When interest rates hit zero, then they don't have. It's a little bit like uh, your uh, steering system on your car freezing up or uh, hitting a uh, your hydroplaning on the highway. Your steering wheel doesn't work anymore, because once interest rates hit zero, you can't cut them anymore, and th and that's what the Fed wants to do. I'm talking about four-week Treasury bills. The uh, the federal funds rate. Is still at two and a quarter percent, but at least the the uh, the more prominent uh, three-month T-bill rate is uh, is at the at the end. So what I um, what I want to do is talk about what the Fed in this country is doing and what other central banks are doing, uh, but I wanted to start by putting it in historical perspective, uh, and so if you allow me, I will. <laughs> Uh, talk first about just what is a central bank, uh, such as the Federal Reserve, uh, and uh, and what do they do? So uh, I want to first just go back. The story I told you in a recent lecture was the story of a goldsmith banker. Okay, this is how it started. 
There were people, goldsmiths were people who worked in the metal gold and made beautiful things for people, jewelry and other things. And they had safes in their shop. And some people would say to the goldsmith, uh, you know, I have some valuables. I don't have a safe. Can I put it in your safe? And the goldsmith would say, okay. And then he'd write a little note uh, and hand it to the guy and say, just keep this note. And if it was a bearer note, if the note said, I'll pay, if, if it wasn't a unique object but just gold, the, the note would say that this goldsmith will pay to the bearer so many um, ounces of gold. Uh, and that's how um, banking got started. Um, it emerged into an institution in which banks would uh, uh, have notes, uh, bank notes, uh, that circulated widely. Uh, and we began to think of them as money. If you put your gold in the care of a goldsmith, initially you don't think, you think the money is there, but eventually you have this bearer note that you start passing around to spend to other people, and they start to think of them as money. Uh, and that's the origin of banking. So if you ask someone a couple hundred year, years ago, what's the essence of a bank? They would say, oh, they print paper money. Private banks print paper money not just uh, government banks. Well, there weren't government banks. They were, uh, originally, they were all private. Uh, there is an institution called the Gold Standard, now totally and completely gone everywhere in the world. Uh, what it was, it began, the first country to adopt the Gold Standard officially was the United Kingdom, and that was in 1717. Uh, and what it meant was that the government of the UK was committed that their paper money would always and at all times be redeemable in gold. Uh, it was gradually adopted by other countries through time, uh, and the United States didn't officially adopt it until 1900. Uh, but uh, uh, but uh, let me just go back to the. Uh, the way the thing worked. It used to be that uh, it was, uh, the, actually, the gold standard kind of came in by accident in England originally. There was in the 1600s, the, the prominent coin was called the shilling, and it was a silver coin. So the British pound was 20 shillings, and so effectively the pound was on a silver standard. But then they started minting new coins out of gold, and the government was issuing coins. They called them guineas, uh, and they started out as a they just minted the amount in one coin, which they thought was equivalent to 20 shillings. So they had a guinea, which they said was 20 shillings. Uh, and uh, then there were two coins. You could either shillings or guineas. There were, that was the money at the time. Uh, but then the problem was that the price, relative price of those two was not really fixed by the government. And so it started to drift. And people started to think, I think a guinea is worth more than 20 shillings. And the market price drifted up to 21 shillings. And so uh, the government was upset of the UK. We wanted this to be a 20 shilling coin, but now in the market it's trading at 21. So then they implement a rule that the guinea is worth 21 shillings. Um, then the relative price of gold versus silver shifted to the point that uh, the, uh, the uh, gold with the, the at 21 shilling exchange rate, the gold shilling was worth less. The gold guinea was worth less than 21 shillings. So all the shillings disappeared. 
and the only coin left was the guinea. And so England uh, became on the gold standard. Uh, the Bank of England was founded in 1694, and that is the world's first central bank. Um, it was granted uh, a monopoly on joint stock banking by Parliament in return for uh, uh, giving war loans to the government. Uh, it started out as just a powerful bank. Uh, it uh, did not have a government monopoly on note issue. But over the time, it became the uh, prime issuer of UK notes. Now, what actually developed in the 1700s is that the Bank of England, being the most powerful bank in England, started to demand that other banks in the UK, who were also issuing notes, uh, would leave their would, would keep a deposit with the Bank of England. So the Bank of England. If you were a little bank somewhere in, in the UK, the Bank of England would say, you've got to keep a deposit <laughs> with us. Uh, otherwise, we'll destroy you. Because the Bank of England could then demand all the, could, could start accumulating notes from some issuing bank and then demand payment in gold. Uh, and the issuing bank uh, would be driven out of business if it didn't. It, 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 they all were using fractional reserve banking. and so. If you have a big player that's demanding gold uh, from you, you're in trouble. So all the banks complied and, tend and kept deposits with the Bank of England. So you see what Bank of England emerged into was a banker's bank. Okay? You have lots of banks. The banks are taking in gold and issuing notes, uh, but, but they are forced by the Bank of England to keep a deposit at the Bank of England. Uh, and, uh, so the Bank of England then became a kind of a regulator of these banks, and it would also loan to them when they're in trouble. They had a relationship between the Bank of England, and so the, the Bank of England became a source of stability in the UK. The problem with private banks issuing notes is that they would periodically uh, be banking crises uh, when the banks failed to pay on their notes and they couldn't pay out. Uh, the gold that was demanded, that was required. With a fractional reserve system, you're in an unstable equilibrium. If people start demanding payment on their notes, then, uh, then they will um, destroy the system. If they, they, if they start demanding, uh, then we're in trouble. So the Bank of England effectively enforced that, uh, that, the, that the banks in England kept adequate reserves. Uh, and, uh, and they would see these, some of these reserves in, in their deposits at the Bank of England. Uh, and so England's uh, money was more stable than in other countries. Uh, and uh, uh, in the United States, we did not have a central bank until 1913 when we created uh, the Federal Reserve System. Before that, the United States went through repeated banking crises uh, when people would start demanding the gold for their notes. Uh, and uh, when did we have? We had a, a severe banking crisis in the United States in 1797, in 1819, in 1837, in 1857, in 1873, 
1893 and in 1907. And we just had one after another where the banking system kept collapsing. What would happen is there'd be a panic. People would say, they're not paying on the notes. Uh, and so everyone would run to the bank and demand their money. And this just, and when that happened, it would destroy the economy. So it was, it was a subject of much discussion of what to do to uh, prevent these bank runs. Uh, in uh, in uh, the United States, uh, in uh, uh, Massachusetts, there were, can you hear me? Maybe I should stay over here. Maybe I shouldn't write on the board. Uh, if uh, in the United States, uh, in Massachusetts, a bank called the Suffolk Bank, that's S-U-F-F-O-L-K, um, created a little Bank of England in the state of Massachusetts, and they created what was called the Suffolk System uh, in 1819. And what the Suffolk Bank did is it just, on its own, it just declared that it was the Bank of England for the, for the state of Massachusetts. And it required that all banks in the Boston area keep deposits with them. Uh, and so the uh, Suffolk beca Bank became a banker's bank. Uh, and uh, it lasted until 1860. Uh, it then made Massachusetts the most stable state, uh, or essentially the most stable state in the country, and it was widely admired. The uh, thing you have to understand is if you could go back in a time machine to uh, before 1860 uh, in the United States, you would have real problems with paper money. Uh, and you would be very much aware of the paper money. If you took out your wallet and looked at the paper money in your wallet, it would be issued by lots of different banks, not any one standard bank. Okay? If you went to a store to buy something with paper money, the, the person at the, uh, would it be a cash register? What do they have? Cash box <laughs> would be, would have uh, something called Van, what was it called? Van Cort's um, banknote reporter and counterfeit detector. It was a magazine that would be, every, every retailer would subscribe to it. And so what the guy would do is he would say, okay, you've got, if, if it was local money, if it was from this town, that, you know, if it was New Haven money, there were New Haven banks, the, the guy would immediately know what it's worth. But if you were to make the mistake of trying to spend Boston money in New Haven, they would get out Van Courts and then they would read the discount. Uh, and so Boston money was probably pretty good because of the Suffolk system, but if you tried spending New York money in New Haven, they would get out the, uh, the banknote reporter and give, uh, put a discount on it. So it was a messy system. So you'd only get like 90 cents on the dollar. Uh, that's because nobody trusted these banks. There was, they, they could go under any day, and so they tended to sell at a discount. So. Uh, uh, incidentally, the U.S. did create what sound like central banks. They were the first bank of the United States uh, and the second bank of the United States. The first bank of the United States was created in 1791, uh, and uh, it had a 20-year charter, which expired in 1811. Uh, and it wasn't immediately renewed because the United States got into a war that we call the War of 1812. It was the U.S. connection to the Napoleonic Wars. So it wasn't until after the war that we created a new Bank of the United States 
1816 and gave it a 20-year charter as well. Uh, so, but those were not central banks because they uh, uh, these uh, we have a correction of our microphone problem. Oh, we lost it. No, I have my microphone on. It's just that it's, they say it's not working or it's not loud enough. Oh, it is working. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, but you still can't hear me when I stand over here. All right. Um, okay. There was a in the United States we created the national banking system in 1863, after a banking crisis. And uh, that worked fairly well. Instead of having a central bank, we decided that there would be a, a list of banks called the national banks. Uh, and, uh, and the national banks would be required to help bail out any bank that was failing. Uh, and so it was something like a central bank, but it was different, essentially in that the national banks really didn't have authority uh, to run monetary policy. They merely were there in a, term, in a time of emergency to prevent, hopefully, a banking crisis. Uh, and they didn't succeed. We still had banking crises. So the system didn't seem to work very well. The 1907 banking crisis then led, finally, to the creation of the system that we have now, the Federal Reserve System. Uh, and what it was was, in many ways, an effort to bring the Bank of England to the United States. They wouldn't have said that because it doesn't sound, we want to think that we invented this here. But it actually was a new invention in a way because the United States uh, has a different philosophy, uh, which is the United States has been committed over, since its beginning, to federalism. That is, they don't want, uh, or more broadly, they don't want centralization of power in the government. And so, the, instead of setting up a central bank in the United States, as was done commonly in other countries, the United States instead created 12 banks. They're the 12 Federal Reserve Banks. That was an effort to disperse power away from the center. Uh, the idea was that uh, power to the people <laughs> rather than the central government. Uh, and uh, the Federal Reserve System that was created in 1913 was different in that it was independent, or much more independent than central banks in other countries. Other countries had set up central banks uh, uh, following on the Bank of England, but the U.S. didn't set up a central bank. It set up a system of 12 banks, and they were regional. And the idea was that this is better, it's more democratic. Each region of the United States has its own, uh, its own bank. Uh, and the banks were not technically government institutions. Well, they're semi-government. It's kind of strange setup. The, uh, the, the, the Federal Reserve banks are owned not by the government, but by the banks in this region where they operate. They're called member banks. So banks that become a member of the Federal Reserve System get shares and they become stockholders in the Federal Reserve Bank. And they get dividends. It should work now. OK. Does it work now? Can I walk away? Wonderful. <laughs> OK, thank you.
but, but they're not traded. There's no price per share that you can observe, uh, and the banks can't do anything except passively receive the dividend. But they can also participate in choosing the directors and the president of the Federal Reserve Banks. Uh, okay, so that's a very dispersed system, but it still works because <coughs> member banks keep deposits at the Federal Reserve Banks, uh, and uh, they're required to keep these deposits. And moreover, uh, they can also borrow from the Federal Reserve Banks when they need, when they're in trouble and need money, and that's supposed to help prevent uh, banking crises. Uh, so um, that's the Federal Reserve System. Incidentally, there's 12 banks and there's 12 districts. Uh, the districts back in 1913 are uh, represented the population distribution of the U.S. at that time. So uh, there's a lot more districts in the East Coast <laughs> of the U.S. than the West Coast. There's also two Federal Reserve Banks in once in the state of Missouri. Uh, both the, <laughs> uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. And the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. So you wonder why would it be that the whole western half of the U.S. gets only, or the western third of the U.S. gets only one cent, one Federal Reserve Bank, that's St. Uh, San Francisco, but Missouri gets two. Well, that's kind of political history. Uh, it's kind of absurd, but that's the way it is. Um, the the real difference uh, between the um, Federal Reserve Bank s system. Of 1913, the most important difference in the Federal Reserve System of today is that we are no longer on the gold standard. Uh, the, the Federal Reserve System was a gold standard institution, like the Bank of England. It was supposed to uh, maintain the convertibility of the currency into gold. Okay, so under the gold standard, your dollar bill. Represented so many ounces of gold, and you were supposed to be able to always get that gold. That means uh, you could go to a bank and demand gold, and the bank then could go to the um, uh, Federal Reserve and get gold for it. Uh, that was the system. The gold standard was a success in the sense that the price of gold stayed constant. Because that's what the whole system was designed to do. There's a famous story about Irving Fisher, who was a professor here at Yale, uh, who, uh, remarking on how few people understand the gold standard. I don't know if I'm repeating this, but he was at his dentist. Uh, did I tell you? I didn't tell you this. <laughs> he was at his dentist, and they used to give gold fillings in those days. And he said uh, to the dentist, he said. Just out of curiosity, can you tell me what the price of gold has, you know, what it's been doing lately? Uh, and the dentist said, "Gee, I don't know. I'll, I'll look at my records. I have some old records, and I'll see what I was paying for for my gold for the gold fillings ten years ago." And the dentist came back and said, "Funny thing, it hasn't changed at all. I'm paying exactly what I did ten years ago." Uh, Irving Fisher then told that story as an illustration of how poorly the understanding is. Of what's going on, of course, the price of gold never changed in the gold standard because that was the whole point of the gold standard—that the currency was convertible into gold. But what happened in the 1930s is that one country after another abandoned the gold standard, uh, and 
the United Kingdom was the prominent first case, uh, even though they had invented the gold standard hundreds of years earlier. In 1931, they dropped convertibility of the pound sterling, still called pound sterling, even though it's not silver, it was gold. Uh, they, they dropped the pound convertibility. Uh, the United States dropped it in 1933, uh, and other countries uh, did it later. The reason that countries dropped the gold standard is that under the uh, uh, effort to keep the currency convertible into gold, they were worsening the depression of the 1930s. Uh, in order to keep the currency convertible, they had to keep interest rates high to prevent people from demanding the gold, uh, and keeping interest rates high was, was destroying the economy. Uh, and so, the gold standard ended in the 1930s, and every country dropped it. But we're left with the central banking institutions that are now functioning without convertibility to gold. Um, and uh, so, uh, there, you, then you start to wonder, well, what is the system, and what is it supposed to do? The old gold standard was supposed to maintain the convertibility of gold and currency, but now we're not even backing it with currency anymore, with gold anymore. So what does it mean? Um, well, what it means is that starting in the 1930s, we began to think of central banks as managing the money stock, uh, to um, managing the money stock to stabilize the economy. And that's what that's the view that's developed that has been uh, with us ever since. Um, they still hold gold, and right now the Federal Reserve System has about eleven billion dollars of gold. All right, they still have it. When remember what happened in 1933 is they abandoned convertibility with gold. Right, so that means that you no longer have the right to get it. Uh, but uh, uh, that doesn't mean they don't still own gold. Th it's just sitting there in their vaults from way back. Uh, so some people ask, what is the currency backed by? And it used to be backed by gold. But the question of what it means to say something is backed by something, uh, because uh, uh, just be well, you could say it's backed by gold because the, the Fed has eleven billion dollars of gold. All right, and that's a lot less than the amount of money out there. But they always had fractional reserve uh, banking anyway. They never kept all the gold for all the dollars that they issued. So you could say it's still backed by gold. The really important thing is it's not convertible into gold. All right, and so since 1933, the f the Fed has been managing an inflation. It used to be that there was zero inflation if you define it. With respect to gold, and they were really true to that. Zero inflation in terms of gold. Now there was inflation with regard to a basket of, of uh, the consumer price index. Is not just the price of gold; it's the price of of many things. But the uh, the uh, there would be inflation or deflation as the relative price of gold changed. But after 1933, we had lost our moorings. There was no longer any idea that the dollar was backed by anything. The concept changed fundamentally. The concept be became 
the, the Federal Reserve or the central banks in any co uh, country are managing the economy and the, uh, the, their management of the money supply is, uh, is, um, is uh, their way of, of managing how well things go. Generally, it has been inflationary. Uh, once we, after 1933, central banks have generally gradually uh, allowed prices to rise. Um, and the general view is that if it's not, ex not extreme, uh, the rise is not too extreme, it's good for the health of the economy, as long as we don't have inflation that's too high. Uh, and so central banks around the world began to uh, manage. Uh, Became managers of inflation rather than defenders of of a, a gold standard. Let me just mention a couple of other central banks. Uh, the, the Bank of England has been providing an example for the world for a long time. Uh, the Bank of Japan was established in uh, imitation of the Bank of England uh, in 1882. Uh, the, uh, uh, the many central banks in Europe, uh, th they have dates that go back uh, to the 18th or 19th century. Uh, some banks, however, are very new. The European Central Bank, which uh, issues the Euro currency, uh, was founded in 1998, so it's only 10 years old. Uh, that's because it replaced central banks of the member countries of the European Union. The central banks still exist, so you still have the Bank of France, the Deutsche Bundesbank, etc., but they no longer have the importance that they once did because they no longer manage uh, a currency. The currency is centralized at the European Central Bank. Uh, one thing that's been a trend around the world is that the I mentioned that the U.S. Federal Reserve System was different from other central banks in that it was designed to have independence. Uh, the thought was that the central bank is, gu is guarding the money stock and governments have a tendency to sometimes to want to raid the bank when they're in trouble. Typically, it happened during wars. A government gets into a war, okay? During the war, the government needs resources, it's in trouble, it raises taxes to try to pay for the war, but then it finds it unable to collect taxes well. People start evading taxes, there's a lot of discord, it's just hard to raise money by taxes. So what the government would do is send someone over to the central bank and say, hey, expand, ex uh, expand give us, just lend us money, you're the central bank, lend us money. Uh, and so the central bank would print up notes and give it to the government, and the government would start spending it on the war. Uh, and so uh, uh, then you'd have inflation because they're printing all this money. So wartime periods were typically periods of great inflation and debasement of the currency. Uh, and so uh, that's why we need independence of the central bank. We want to have a central banker that can say no to the government. So the government comes to the bank and says, it's a war, we need the money, and the central bank would ideally say no. How can you get a central banker to do that? Well, they definitely have to be independent of the government. 
And that was the idea in the US. So there's been a trend to making central banks more independent. And there are particular uh, things that happened. In Japan, in 1997, the government of Japan granted the Bank of Japan independence uh, like the US uh, uh, Central Bank. And so uh, it also happened in the UK in the same year. Uh, now, I've been describing the Bank of England as the model for everyone, but in fact, the Bank of England was not independent until. 1997, uh, and now these these people are the people who run these banks. They, they they may still be appointed by the government, but they have terms of office uh, that are lengthy, and the government can't kick the central head head of the central bank out uh, for failing to offer them loans when they want it. Uh, so in the United States, uh, we have 12 Federal Reserve banks. But we have a Federal Open Market Committee, uh, or the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, organizes policy for all 12 banks. Uh, and the uh, members of the Federal Reserve Board have 14 year terms. Uh, plus, all of the presidents of the Federal Reserve Banks come and serve on something called the Federal Open Market Committee. Uh, and the Federal Open Market Committee makes monetary policy. So it's decentralized and long terms. The, uh, the board members have 14-year terms, which is quite a long time. Uh, and the central, and also there are the um, banks from the uh, uh, regional banks that uh, uh, that uh, have uh, also a role. So the Federal Open Market Committee meets uh, about every six weeks or so. Uh, and they decide on monetary policy. Uh, in fact, they decide on how to uh, set interest rates uh, and borrowing requirements for member banks. One of the things that the Federal Reserve does is it sets reserve requirements for banks. Reserve requirements are like what the Bank of England did or the Suffolk Bank did long ago. It says that you have to keep Deposits with us here at the central bank, either either that or else keep vault cash uh, and and show that you have it as reserves for uh, uh, for your uh, deposits. Now these banks no longer issue notes. We've centralized the note issue in the United States starting in 1913 with the Federal Reserve Board. So your notes that you see are called Federal Reserve notes. Uh, but banks still are vulnerable to bank runs because they still have deposits. And so the system is still vulnerable. And that, therefore, the Federal Reserve has a set up a set of reserve requirements. Uh, now the reserve requirement, it's progressive. Small banks have lower reserve requirements, but it rapidly gets up to a standard. And so the, the reserve requirement now is 10%. Uh, on <coughs> demand deposits. So uh, they're forced to uh, keep those reserves, uh, and uh, uh, much of that is in the form of deposits at the uh, Federal Reserve Banks. <coughs> so one, one form of monetary policy that the Fed does is to, they can change these reserve requirements. The other, but more commonly uh, used monetary policy is to change the rate 
is to uh, effectively uh, alter the rate of interest on deposits. So the interest rate, uh, the the the, the uh, policy tool in the United States, the policy interest rate uh, or key rate in the United States is called the federal funds rate, and the federal funds rate is an overnight lending rate between banks. The Federal Reserve conducts monetary policy by targeting the federal funds rate, uh, and it announces uh, since 1994. It has been announcing after the meetings of the Federal Open Market Committee. It's been announcing the uh, uh, federal funds rate uh, publicly. Uh, so the federal funds rate was recently cut to 2.25 percent, uh, and it's likely it's expected to be cut further because of the. Uh, recession that we're now apparently in, uh, and so that will be the um, that will be the uh, monetary policy tool. What's happening right now in the United States is that the economy is collapsing. Uh, maybe that's overstating. <laughs> it's contracting, uh, and so the Fed is trying to prevent a serious recession by cutting interest rates, and so they've been cutting them rapidly. Uh, and uh, the federal funds rate is a rate that is targeted by the Fed, and it's their principal target. Uh, the federal funds rate is the rate that banks borrow and lend to each other overnight on. Uh, there's another interest rate that the Fed sets, and that's called the discount rate. Uh, and um, the, um, um, the discount rate. Uh, is the rate that the Fed charges for loans to member banks. The um, member banks, just as with the, uh, the Bank of England, when they are in trouble, they are supposed to be able to borrow money from the, the central bank. Okay? And the central bank posts an interest rate that uh, that is uh, the rate at which these member banks can borrow. Uh, the, there was an important change in the discount rate in January uh, of 2003. It used to be that the Fed would grant loans to member banks uh, in the form of discount rate uh, loan, uh, lending uh, if the uh, Bank could certify that it was in trouble, uh, and uh, at that time they would give generous loans. This is before 2003. The, the discount rate was a policy variable set by the Fed, and it was typically 50 basis points below the federal funds rate. Okay, they're lending to banks that were in trouble, and the uh, so we'll, we'll give them a good rate. That's what they used to do. In 2003, they decided to change that, and they decided to raise the discount rate above the, uh, uh, the uh, federal funds rate. And so they actually, there's two discount rates. There's primary and secondary. Uh, the primary discount rate is typically 100 basis points above the funds rate. Um, and uh, that's not so recently. They've been cutting it relatively, but that, that was originally the idea. So they, in, what they wanted to do in starting in 2003 is to eliminate the idea that the discount rate 
is only for banks who are in trouble. They wanted to eliminate the stigma. It used to be embarrassing to borrow at the discount window because uh, the discount rate would, uh, because it would be an admission that the bank is in trouble. Uh, and so, in order to try to eliminate that stigma, they made it a penalty rate. They made the discount rate higher than the um, than the federal funds rate. So now the federal funds rate is at two and a quarter percent. The discount rate is now only 25 basis points higher. It's at two and a half percent. They've been cutting the uh, spread between the discount rate and the federal funds rate again as an effort to stimulate uh, the economy. Uh, I think one reason why they may have changed it in 2003 is that interest rates were getting really close to zero in 2003. And they were worried that if the f- discount rate is 50 basis points below the federal funds rate, then it's going to hit zero, and that would be embarrassing. So they moved it. I think that might be the reason. No one knows what their, all their reasons were. Um, so, um, so the, the basic idea that's developed is that the Fed is looking at inflation and unemployment as the two major things that it looks at. Inflation is, is the most important thing, according to many views, because the Fed has to guarantee the soundness of the, of the money supply. And there have been so many cases in history when the, the central bank allowed debasement of the currency through inflation. Uh, and it's thought that that is a serious error because it destroys trust in the currency. Uh, on the other hand, the Fed is also concerned with unemployment and the possibility of a collapse in the system. So right now, the Fed is in a difficult situation. Last year, we had 4% inflation. 4% inflation is high by, uh, by uh, traditional standards. It's above what we'd like. We'd like it to be more like 2%. 4% is high. And so that would mean that the Fed should be raising interest rates to try to tighten up the economy and, and bring the inflation rate down. But unfortunately, we're in this collapse situation in the economy. Uh, and so the Fed has a problem. It, it, this, there's a name for this. It's called stagflation. Stagflation was a term that was developed in the 1970s to refer to a time when inflation is, we have both high inflation and high unemployment. And so we're in that situation apparently again. So with interest rates hitting zero, uh, Alan, I say Alan Greenspan. Ben Bernanke must be losing sleep at night. This is exactly the worst nightmare of a central banker. You've got this policy tool of interest rates, but once it hits zero, you're, you're, you're out of business. So he has been working on trying to find other tools of monetary policy. And um, uh, Ben Bernanke has been very creative in uh, doing it. Maybe I write some of these things down. Uh, the term auction facility, or TAF, was created uh, by the Federal Reserve uh, under Bernanke on December 12th. And so uh, it's a new form of monetary policy. Uh, a new invention, which we've been doing only for uh, a matter of months now. Uh, what the term auction facility, it, w- it was also created in connection, in collaboration with the Bank of Canada, the Bank of England, 
the European Central Bank and the Swiss National Bank. So we're seeing an internationalization of bank monetary policy. All of these central banks of, of Canada, England, Europe, and Switzerland got together with the Federal Reserve and said, that obviously, they were worried about the financial crisis that was engulfing the world. And so they agreed to auction off. Uh, it's, it's a little bit different than a. Um, uh, it's a little different from an ordinary monetary policy. Uh, it, it's a way of, of uh, helping troubled financial institutions. Uh, so what they did, I, instead of just remember the, the federal funds rate is a target interest rate that the Fed attempts to hit through buying and selling treasury bills in the U.S. or, or in other countries, buying and selling government bonds to affect the market. If the Fed wants to push the federal funds rate out uh, down, it goes and buys short-term government bonds. Buying them tends to push up the price. That tends to influence the yield down, and so it encourages a lower level of interest rate. Uh, but the term auction facility is different. In this facility, uh, banks are allowed the, the Fed announces a certain amount of money that it wants to put out there uh, in, uh, in, in the form of uh, collateralized loans uh, with uh, uh, other banks, uh, with member banks. Uh, and so what, what the Fed said it would do is, is announce an auction uh, of so many billion dollars of. Uh, of uh, uh, loans to uh, member banks, and the, 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 the banks have to supply collateral to the Federal Reserve. Uh, the, the collateral could be a number of things, including uh, mortgage, securitized mortgages that are uh, in risky and dangerous uh, assets. Uh, and so, in effect, the Fed is trying to solve the subprime crisis by taking on as collateral. Uh, some of these risky things in exchange for uh, offering uh, lo uh, loans to uh, 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 member banks. And, th and it's different from Fed policy in that they set up an, a, a certain amount of money and auction that off uh, to the highest bidder. Uh, and so troubled banks then, who have this, the problem banks have now is they have these. these uh, securitized mortgages that they've bought, and the, the homeowners are defaulting on the mortgages now, uh, and so th there's a panic in the market for securitized mortgages, and so the price is often very low, or if it's there, it, it, they're very hard to market, hard to sell, uh, and so banks uh, are, are in trouble, and as you know, they're starting to fail because they, the value of their assets in the market. Is falling rapidly, so the Fed is effectively just saying we'll take those assets as collateral for loans to you. Uh, and so uh, they've given out as of today, uh, it's 80 billion uh, on the term. So this thing is uh, this new invention is uh, three months old at this point. Uh, but the system continues to look more precarious. And so uh, th this is a, a very interesting time because uh, the uh, Fed is, um, is continuing to invent. 
So then they came up with the uh, term securities loan facility. Uh, and don't look this up in Fabozzi, uh, because the date of founding was March 11, 2008. That's the date that they announced it. Uh, and uh, uh, what they're going to do is have auctions of loans of, of um, treasury securities in exchange for collateral, such as the mortgage securities. And the first auction is uh, first auction is March uh, 27, 2008, which you may note is tomorrow. <laughs> so uh, actually, I mentioned the term securities loan facility because uh, it's a new innovation, but it hasn't started yet. So in their announcement on March 11, they said. The Fed would lend up to 200 billion uh, of securities to the market. See what, what they're really doing is just the, the, we're facing the seize up of our financial system. So we have banks that uh, we've just seen the failure of Bear Stearns, which is actually a broker dealer. But uh, banks and broker dealers uh, are in trouble because their assets are collapsing under them. And they can't sell them to get money. So the Fed is saying, fine, we'll just take those and we'll give you treasury bills, which are completely, no, no everyone trusts them. So you had some asset that nobody trusts. The US Federal Reserve will take it on. Uh, uh, and this is an effort, this is different from most monetary policy. Uh, now, it's different um, uh, in, in important ways because. It's really focused at preventing the collapse of the economy that is created by a financial system failure. Uh, and uh, so it's looking at the problem that certain troubled institutions have, that their assets can't be sold. Um, and, um, and it's just saying, OK, we'll, we'll replace them with assets that can be sold. The Fed is, ta <coughs> is taking on a serious risk. In doing this, uh, because these assets that it takes on in exchange for treasury securities could fail. Uh, nobody knows how bad the mortgage crisis is going to get. But Ben Bernanke thinks that it's so important uh, that we, um, uh, that we uh, prevent a collapse that we should, uh, we should take that risk. Incidentally, both of these things. This is called the TSLF, and this is called the TAF. Both of these are joint with the Fed in the United States, the ECB, the Bank of England, uh, and the Swiss uh, Bank, and Bank of Canada. So these are all international efforts to, to forestall a, a financial crisis. Uh, there's a third one, uh, which uh, uh, is even newer. Well, it's, it made this one was announced. The third uh, innovation is called the Primary Dealers 
credit facility. Uh, and that was announced March 16, 2008. So that's uh, how many days ago? <laughs> a few days ago, 10 days ago. Uh, and that's called the PDCF. Uh, and uh, what the PDCF is, is really an extension of the discount window beyond member banks. Uh, and you have to know what are primary dealers. Uh, and uh, primary dealers are broker dealers. They are not banks. Uh, the critical thing that's happening is that at a time of financial crisis, which exceeds any that we've seen, perhaps since the Great Depression, uh, but certainly bigger than we've seen in many years, the Fed is worrying about not just member banks, but also other financial institutions. For example, uh, Bear Stearns, which is a, a broker-dealer, uh, failed recently. Uh, and the Fed is worried about a collapsing house of cards. So what's essential about the prim primary dealer's credit facility is that they're opening up the discount window lending beyond the member banks to primary dealers. So what is a primary dealer? When the Treasury in the United States sells Treasury bills, notes, and bonds, they deal almost exclusively, or say primarily, with broker-dealers, not the general public. Okay? So the Federal Reserve has a list uh, which you can find on their website, of dealers who are eligible to participate in Treasury security auctions. Uh, there's 20, actually, I'm not sure there's 20 anymore. One of them was Bear Stearns. Uh, and so I don't know whether they're still on the list. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. We might have to be down to 19. But these are broker-dealers. Uh, some of them are international, like BNB Paribas is one of them. It's, it's French. Uh, and so, uh, by opening up the primary dealer's credit facility, we are, we are, what the government is offering to do is to take bad investments that they made on as collateral for loans at 2.5%, uh, which is the current uh, uh, discount rate. Uh, so this is quite a remarkable uh, change, reflecting the seriousness of the crisis. Uh, and, uh, so, um, uh, so I think, uh, and it's reflecting the fact that we're moving into possibly a situation uh, of a protracted situation of of nearly zero interest rates and in an effort to get more uh, <coughs> to keep the economy from uh, collapsing. Uh, at a time when, um, uh, uh, at, a, at a time of great uh, uh, concern about the structure of the financial system, this is different than other recessions. Uh, we've had other economic problems uh, in that have led to recessions, but it, it hasn't seemed to be something as uh, as potentially global uh, as it is now. You know, we had the. Uh, uh, 
savings and loan crisis of the 1980s. And in the savings and loan crisis, it was a certain segment of the banking community, the SNLs, that seemed to be in trouble. But it didn't seem to be then a house of cards that could spread around, uh, around the country and uh, around the world. Uh, in 1998, there was the Russian default crisis, and then there was, uh, uh, there was some seize up uh, of, of that maybe resembles what we're happening, is happening now. Long-term capital management was a big uh, 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 hedge fund that fa failed in 1998 and got bailed out by the Fed. Um, but I didn't see then the, the proliferation of these new instruments uh, that uh, uh, reflects concerns about the current economic situation. Um, so I think uh, maybe the concluding lesson is that the, the central banks were institutions that emerged out of experience with bankers. It started not really as a planned system, uh, not planned by any government. The Bank of England was its own bank, and the Suffolk Bank was its own bank, and they developed ways of doing business uh, uh, without government uh, planning uh, to help try to preserve stability of the system. Uh, there have been fundamental changes uh, through time that make the role of a central bank uh, evolve and change through time. So I, note, I mentioned earlier that we used to be on the gold standard, and central banks were gold standard institutions that were uh, trying to stabilize the economy, but subject to the constraint that they had to maintain convertibility with gold. Uh, and, uh, but those uh, central banks' uh, role has changed a lot. Uh, the, it seems like the nature of recessions is always changing. Uh, the, uh, the, biggest the biggest recession we've had since the Great Depression uh, was the um, was actually a pair of recessions. Uh, in um, there was a, a short recession in 1980, uh, which lasted just a few months, uh, and people once we got out of it, people thought maybe we're getting a brief uh, a respite. But then the U.S. crashed into a huge, well, actually, it was a worldwide recession of, re of 1981-2. And this was the biggest recession uh, uh, since the Great Depression. What caused that recession? Uh, I think there's a simple story, which is very different from what's causing the current, uh, apparently, current recession. In 19 in the 1960s and 70s, central banks around the world were inflating the currency. Uh, it was getting out of proportion. We had inflation rates in the United Kingdom on the order of 20% a year, and people were asking, what is going on in the UK? Bastion of enlightenment, what's going on? So they, uh, they elected Margaret Thatcher, uh, and uh, uh, there was a resolve to do something about it. But it wasn't just the UK, it was all over the world. Inflation rates had gotten very high, even in Germany, uh, where anti-inflation sentiment was the highest. And so central banks around this time, <coughs> was, I, I think it was under the leadership of Paul Volcker, who was Federal Reserve Chairman, they raised interest rates to, to kill inflation, uh, and they threw the world into the, a huge recession. So um, what, what, what caused it? 
it was caused, if, if it, maybe it's oversimplifying, uh, it was caused by uh, a, a change in our resolve to let, let's get inflation under control and the willingness to accept the recession to stop the advance of inflation. You can blame it on other things like the oil crisis of 1979. Nothing is completely simple. But anyway, this, is, this recession has been a model uh, for what happens in recessions. And the idea that emerged, uh, this, uh, the memory of the 81-82 recession is very strong in our imagination because we think that it was caused by lax monetary policy, by liberal thinking, by uh, soft-hearted liberals who just didn't want to create any pain and suffering. I'm, I'm talking about the view that's commonplace. And so we finally got tough. We got Paul Volcker in there. Uh, and uh, central banks around the world all managed to get tough around that time, and we killed inflation. Uh, but it created a recession. That's what happened in 81, 82. But you have to remember that times are different. Subsequent recessions were not like that. So we had another recession in 1990, 91, and it wasn't very big or bad. Uh, this recession was, I think, just a Gulf War recession. It was caused by, uh, well, partly by an oil price spike caused by the, Saddam, the war against Saddam Hussein. Uh, but it was also caused by just a general lack of confidence. Uh, it wasn't caused by uh, the Fed suddenly tightening against inflation. Uh, it was different. It was, um, uh, it was, this recession was not understood, not anticipated. The Fed came in late to cut interest rates to try to prevent it from getting worse, because it just didn't seem to have any reason for happening. It just surprised everyone. So it was not a repeat of this. And then we saw the 2001 recession. That recession, again, is different. And I think the 2001, if you want to tell a story about it, uh, the 2001 recession was caused by the end of the stock market boom. We had a bubble in the stock market in the 1990s, and it collapsed after 2000. And with that, it brought the economy down. The Fed then again cut interest rates in 2001 in response to the very definite weakness of the economy. Uh, and then that brings us to the 2008 recession. Now, I, it still hasn't been identified as a recession. And, and some people are still hoping that we won't have a recession uh, in 2008. Uh, but I think it's really looking like we are in a recession. Notably, there's different indicators. The, the one that just came out is the um, Consumer Confidence Index, which was a conference board publication. That index is now uh, way below it, the lowest that it got in the 2001 recession. All right, and it's at the level almost down to the lowest that we got in the 1990-91 recession. So I, you know, that by that indicator, we are in a recession, and we don't know that it's over yet. It's been falling. Uh, home prices are falling at the highest rate we've ever seen. You know, I have my own indexes, the Standard and Poor Case-Shiller indexes, and we announced our indexes yesterday. Uh, we saw record price declines on a monthly basis for 14 of our 20 cities that we reported. That means that they've never declined uh, as much in one month before. So, well, our data started in 1987. I have, uh, I don't have, we don't have data on an individual city basis, but it really looks like the housing collapse, price collapse that we're going through now, 
is uh, uh, on a magnitude not paralleled since the Great Depression of the 1930s. Uh, so, um, uh, I, I, I think that we are in a difficult situation, but maybe it's not uh, panic about it. <laughs> the, the optimistic thing is, I think that we have a very good Fed chairman, uh, and we have coordinated efforts by central banks around the world, and we're doing things that uh, uh, are attempts to prevent the collapse of the financial institutions. I think we're still in a precarious situation, but I think we do have uh, central bankers who are working effectively, given the tools that they have. Now, incidentally, I, I, I'm writing a book. Uh, the title of the book is Subprime Solution, uh, and uh, I just sent off the uh, draft to the copy editor last Friday. So, uh, uh, the book, uh, my publisher, uh, Princeton University Press, uh, wants to get it out before this crisis is over. <laughs> and so, uh, we've got them on a rush to try to get the book out, and they're thinking that uh, we'll at least have copies to reviewers uh, by June. And I've been worrying that my book will be too late, and that by, by June, everything will be rosy, <laughs> and it'll all be over. Uh, I guess I should hope that that happens. Uh, but. <laughs> But uh, I have a suspicion that come June, uh, this crisis will not be over. Uh, unfortunately, some of you are on the job market uh, this year, uh, and I, I want to give you uh, some consolation uh, if, uh, if you have not uh, had a great success so far in finding a finance job. The consolation is they're killing people at the top, too. And so <laughs> they're going to. And so, when you do get a job in a financial institution, there will be more spaces above you on the ladder to move up. <laughs> okay. uh, that, I'm saying that kind of uh, 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 jokingly, but I think, um, I think you are facing a rather difficult, if you're on the job market, you are facing a difficult economy. And, uh, but uh, I'm sure that you will emerge all right in the long run. <laughs>